Design Inside is brought to you by Explain, a design consultancy focused on using the power of design to activate strategy, culture, and process in organizations since 1993. Hi, this is Dave Gray, your host for Design Inside, where we explore how design is changing the face, function, and futures of organizations by interviewing the people at the heart of the change. Today, our guest is MJ, Michael M.J. Jones. He's the Director of Research at Salesforce, where he plays a crucial role in bringing state-of-the-art AI to life for Salesforce customers. MJ acts as the glue between research, engineering, data science, and product teams, helping to drive the application of natural language processing and computer vision across the Salesforce platform. A creator and explorer at heart, MJ brings more than 20 years of technical experience to the role, ranging from coding to product development. In his free time, MJ likes to wrench on rare European off-road vehicles. <laughs> you want to tell us about the start by telling us about the rare European off-road vehicles? Yeah, Dave, and I, I think it comes down to back to design. Like um, in general, automobiles are all trying to solve the same challenge, which is transportation. Um, but depending on where that 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 vehicle is developed and designed, uh, they 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 approach that in a dramatically different way. And so. Uh, I really enjoy looking at, you know, German, British, um, Italian, how, how a lot of these different, um, you know, people solved the same problem many, many years ago. I like, uh, I like things from the 60s and 70s. And so a uh, little bit of a design story. But um, yeah, in general, I've got a fun little collection that I continue to, you know, take care of and feed and and improve. And then ultimately, uh, my wife and I like to go out in the uh, now back and, and explore with them. So uh yeah, it's fun. In addition, I guess it, it comes down to, Dave, you know, I work in technology, but ultimately I'm a creator. I like to I like to build things. And so with the uh, with the automotive, that enables me to build with, you know, metal and steel. And and uh, whereas uh, my day job, it's more ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in the evenings, it's it's with ingredients. And on the weekends, it's with, you know, sewing or welding or something else. So ultimately, I, I just like to build things and it's sort of a, a different medium. Well, from your from your job description, it sounds like you have a really cross functional role where you're talking, you're working with a lot of different groups. Um, those are becoming more and more common these days. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the how you came into being in a, such a cross functional role, and maybe some of the challenges and and uh, you know opportunities that you've come across in in doing that. Yeah, certainly. And and I would want to point out that, you know, I, I do work at Salesforce and, and these views are, are mine, not those of the company, but um, mm-hmm. you know, happy to share some of that. I think it's been, you know, about a 25 year journey. Um, and uh, ultimately, I think it comes down to I like solving problems and, uh, and and I've kind of got a knack for sort of uh, seeing 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 problems and, and imagining solutions or imagining, um, you know, in sort of the toolkit, how we can solve it. And uh it's, it's really exciting, Dave. I, you know, I work on an, it's an artificial intelligence research team. And so uh, it's, it's like, it's almost like we discovered electricity. And so these people are almost, imagine them in the laboratory, putting a feather on the wire and putting glass on the wire. And so they're doing essentially the same thing, but they're doing it with neural networks. And so uh, it's, it's pretty amazing um, working with these researchers. And, and so what I do is they're doing pure academic research. Um, and so at times they, they hit upon things where I was like, oh, I really think that would help create value. And so, you know, at Salesforce, people really think of us as CRM, um, our ticker symbol as a sales software. But it's, uh, you know, over the past 20 years, we've expanded to much more than that. Um, you know, everything from I sort of think of the full life cycle from marketing to sales to service. Um, and so uh, it ultimately gives me a really broad palette uh, to go look at. And so. 
yes, essentially I work with the team and then uh, we take key pieces of uh, technology and then I sort of go, um, I think it comes down to what's enabled me to be successful, Dave, is I have both sort of hard skills, like I like coding and I like thinking through the logical side, but I also have a lot of soft skills and I really enjoy people. I feel that, you know, find that people are fascinating. They all have stories to tell and knowledge. And so uh, that combination enables me to take the technology, understand it, but then go and find what I'd call like mutually beneficial applications. So going to work with my friends over at Marketing Cloud or Service Cloud um, and essentially uh, starting to broker deals saying, hey, I understand, you know, customers are having this challenge. I think we could solve it with this. What do you all think? And so... Um, ultimately, it's sort of uh, coming up with a dream and then selling that dream, but ensuring that dream is mutually beneficial. Sounds like you're, I mean, Salesforce is a pretty big company, right? So uh, it dep- It's all relative. I think what, <laughs> we're around 40,000 is what uh, uh, we say. So, yes, compared to some other companies I've been at, that's massive, but compared to like a Microsoft, that's still rather small. So it sounds like a lot of your job is just connect, making connections between people. Um, a lot of it is, I mean, it's, um, you know, we talk about organizations and, and it's funny, you know, a lot of people have a lot of distaste for organizations, but I said at the end of the day, organizations, it's just a collection of people. It, mm-hmm. it all comes down to people at the end, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And so, uh, yeah, I feel that, um, it's funny. I think one stat they said at Salesforce is you have a better, you have a better likelihood of getting into Harvard than hired. There's so many people that apply. And so uh, I think that results in we've got some amazing people, amazing people to work with. So uh, I, uh, I genuinely enjoy getting to know them both, uh, both personally and professionally, you know, understanding, you know, what they do at work, but then what are their passions outside of work? So can you tell me a little bit about your journey? How did you get into such an interesting role? Where, how, how did you, where did you start and how did you, uh, how did your career? Uh... Yeah. I, um, I, let's see, growing up, my father's in the Air Force, so I was an Air Force brat, which may help with me being somewhat social. I'm used to moving around, being dropped in new places, figuring out the lay of the land and, and, and making friends. Um, uh, so at a young age, I traveled a bit. Uh, then basically I settled, I, I grew up on a farm. I grew up on a farm in the foothills of Virginia. And uh, my uh, mother was a teacher and my father was actually a nuclear engineer. So uh, I started off as a high school biology teacher, Dave. It's hard to believe, but uh, I originally sort of followed my mother's footsteps, and uh, and I still have a, a passion for education and teaching. Um, and I got into that field and um, essentially burnt myself out after two years. I tried to change it, and I and I couldn't. Um, but I did learn a tremendous amount in education that has benefited me down the road, such as. Um, you know, building the relationships, um, documentation, um, working with people, um, trying to find out what motivates people, um, and and ultimately teaching. My favorite kids were the most challenging kids. They were the most interesting by far, and I felt like they had the most potential. Um, so uh, after I uh, kind of got burned out on education, I took a hard right-hand turn into educational software. And so I uh, started up in Charlottesville, Virginia, where they gave me an opportunity to essentially sink or swim. I had a uh, had six months to get Sun uh, Java certified and get the approval by the entire team, and so they dropped me into the team. and uh, And uh, within six months, I did get certifications, and I got the thumbs up, and that sort of began my technical uh, sort of startup journey, um, which brought me out to Portland, Oregon. Um, and I think ultimately, along that journey, it was the building the hard skills and the soft skills, learning, you know, learning the technology, learning the infrastructure, but also learning the people, and then seeing patterns, seeing. Um, 
seeing projects that went well, seeing projects that didn't go well, and starting to do some pattern recognitions of, you know, essentially what are those elements of a good project or good people to work with, um, good outcomes. And uh, I think ultimately just being a lifelong learner and, and incorporating that back into my routine. Um, I was always sort of reflecting back on how things went, uh, trying to incorporate that. And then I think the biggest thing that helped me was people, you know, working with folks like you, Dave. You know, I had, a, I had the opportunity to work with just amazing people at all these startups and uh, felt very fortunate. A lot of people invested time in me. Um, you know, everybody would, uh, would take the time to explain things um, and not just educate me, but I think people also took the time to put me in, in new situations where I could learn more. Like invite me to the big table. Let me sit there and like see how that meeting goes or bring me out to customers and let me see how that goes. Um, so uh, I'd attribute a lot of my success to people helping me. So you, uh, I'm hearing very much people, people-centered people approach. What, are, what yeah. are some of the patterns of a successful project? I mean, what do you, what, what, what do you see that when you, uh, what, do you, what kind of things do you look for? Yeah, um, so on a successful project we need, so again, I come back to it needs to be mutually beneficial for, the, for both individuals. They both need to get something out of it. Um, Otherwise, uh, it's, it's just not, it's just, you know, somebody's going to feel shorted. So uh, having both people recognize the value, having a very clear goal, um, you know, very clear defined sort of where are the goalposts, um, because I think that helps keep us aligned and keep us focused on where we're going. Um, I've seen a lot of projects where there's a hustle to get started and there's not really a clear finish line or a clear goalpost. And um, those don't go well, but I do say, those are also important. I would actually not classify those as projects. I'd classify those more as like fishing expeditions. Um, and I think there's value in those um, going and starting to roll around in it and understand the space without a, a real clear, crisp, crisp end goal. And I think especially with some, uh, some newer technology, that's actually required. You don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but you've got to get out there and start to try things. Um, but good projects typically have, you know, good equality between both parties are going to benefit. Uh, there's, a, there's a clear goal. Um, there's mutual respect between those parties. Um, and then if you can get everybody focused forward, feeling good, working together, then I believe you can accomplish just about anything. Awesome. Uh, how do you prioritize? So, you know, you've got a lot going on. Oh man. Prioritization, Dave. It's amazing. That's, um, it's, it's almost ridiculous. It, it, it permeates every part of my life. Uh, you know, even when I'm, and I do a fair amount of writing on paper, I, uh, Actually, um, you know, I'm a big sort of note taker. Um, and uh, yeah, every list I have is always prioritized. Um, and that's something I learned as a product manager. And um, I think, you know, I've learned, I learned product management through a lot of the organizations, but it's ultimately at Salesforce where I, I really feel like I learned it. I really feel like, you know, I cracked the code on how do you work in a massive organization where you have to align so many teams. Um, and so um, there, Essentially, every list, and even today when we have internal reviews, that is always the question of, this is an ordered list, correct? Like, essentially, if it's on a slide and there are bullet points, those should be ordered. And um, prioritization is important because there's, there's simply not enough time in the day to do everything. And so we always want to make sure that we get to those uh, most important things first. Um, one of the techniques I personally like is sort of the bubble sort method, where essentially you'll take the, the top two items, and you'll say, is this one more important than this one, or is this one more important than that one? And then if something is more important, you rotate it, and then you just go down the list. And so bubble sorting is sort of a nice, simple approach to sort of um, prioritize those. Um, 
and uh, in general, it makes it makes me feel good because I am uh, I said sort of my father beat this work ethic into me where <laughs> I get a lot. I don't feel good, Dave. End of the day, if I haven't done anything, I, I personally don't feel good, and so I'm very driven to get things accomplished, and so I get a lot of joy, sort of you know checking things off my list. Um, so it's always uh, I always really want to make sure I'm focusing on the most important things first. When I first talked to you about um, interviewing you, and I told you that it was the podcast was called design inside one of your first thoughts was reactions was well i'm not really am i really doing design dave and so um you know design's a big word it means a lot of things to a lot of people um when i say that word design what does that mean to you what does it conjure for you especially in relationship to your job design I, i feel that design is everything dave it really is. I mean, I, I, I even the space I'm in, and that's that's another big thing for me. My uh, my wife and I uh, purchased a, a little shack out on the river two years ago, and we spent the past two years on the weekends remodeling that. Mm. And um, and so that uh, you know, as we're creating this house, it's like, what is this space I want to be in? Because my the design of the space I'm in impacts my creativity, impacts my mood, how I feel. So I'm one that believes that design is everything. And I, I think most people, you know, if most people, if they have a bad experience, um, then it, it's really a design problem. And this kind of comes back to, uh, you know, a lot of my, my tinkering on, on some of these old vehicles. Uh, let's see, Mercedes-Benz has uh, on there, was this, uh, 1990 W462, which is an uh, old truck of theirs. They're, they're, the way they've done the the the, the windshield wipers and the lights, it's just total mess. Like it was a really bad design. And so every time I go to turn those on, they go faster than I want. And so uh, uh, ultimately I think design is everything, Dave. It impacts how I feel when I wake up in the morning, how productive I am during the day. It impacts how efficient I am using tools. If tools are not well-designed, they're not efficient. So uh, for me, I, I really believe that it's everything, but it's really sort of the, the, the feel that you get um, from, from, from the interface to, to some extent. So you've talked a little bit about being people oriented and enjoying people, but you know, can you just sort of walk us through your approach? Do you have an approach that you use when you're, you know, solving problems that you go to, uh, over and over or like a way of, excuse me, a way of solving problems? Um, method. Yeah. I, I, I do. Uh, it sort of depends on the problem. You know, there's big problems and small problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also feel sort of the, the more the more sort of time on planet, the better you are at sort of pattern recognition of like, oh, I've seen this before. Um, That's the second um, time you mentioned pattern recognition. Yeah, I guess. In, you talk to us. Guess, talk to me a little bit about pattern recognition. That's. Uh, I mean, it's, it's essentially recognizing. Um, the sort of uh, the situation uh, or the challenge of something that you've seen in the past. And then sort of in your, in your, you know, back in your filing cabinet saying, Oh, I know how to work on that one. Um, And it's almost, uh, it doesn't really take a lot of thought, really. It's almost sort of immediate. Uh, You you can see that and you're like, Oh, this is what I'll need to do next. Um, And, uh, so yeah, maybe it's sort of the ability to sort of generalize because, you know, the world is incredibly complex. Um, and and um, I, maybe pattern recognition is essentially the ability to sort of generalize some of that complexity and, and start to recognize uh, 
um, the challenge. And actually, it'd be interesting to come up with, like, I think about, you know, from engineering perspective, we talk about design patterns, mm-hmm. um, you know, about the model view control or separation concerns and all that. It'd be interesting to maybe get into a book um, where you have almost like life patterns or maybe organizational patterns or, or some other sort of patterns, um, because I, I do believe they exist. And I do believe you could almost come up with sort of a recipe type approach uh, to that. Well, let's let's take a problem. Let's take, for example, a problem you haven't seen before. You don't have a pattern match for it. Right. So uh, then I, I do believe in doing your homework and I believe there's a wealth of knowledge out there. And so um, if there's something if there's a problem, you know, challenge that it, it comes my way where I don't uh, I don't know, I essentially I sort of go into sponge mode and I try to uh, find out as much about it as I possibly can. And not all of it's all just directly to the problem, because I sort of think about, you know, things things have relationships to each other or built upon. And so even though, you know, uh, I'm trying to make it a little more concrete, um, but even though it may seem like it is a, you you know, a user data collection problem, what it might actually be is a UX problem that we never asked for it. So I, when I get into a new space, I essentially do my homework in that space, but I also keep, keep an open mind um, to, to think like, it might not, I might be looking in the wrong spot. I might, cause everything's connected. And so I might need to look. And then, um, so essentially, yes, do, do the diligence, do the discovery. And then I kind of move into experimentation. So I'm like, well, let's see what happens when we do this. And I think that kind of comes back to some of my bio, biology training of like, let's do an experiment. And in an experiment, you need to control, you need to control everything. So it's not that I go throw the kitchen sink at it and try everything. I try one small thing and I see what happens. I'll try something else and see what happens. I'll try something else and see what happens. Um, and then by doing that in a controlled uh, environment, uh, you are sort of able to hone in on, oh, okay, this is what's going to help uh, move the needle. So I'd say it's it's part discovery. It's then it's experimentation. Uh, once you sort of, you know, nailed down what it is, then it's time to sort of take that to production or, or go ahead and operationalize that. Cool. Uh... All right, here's one for you. You have a chance to sit down with the CEO of a typical, you know, large organization. What what do you tell him or her? What what do you say that that person should be thinking about? Maybe with regard so, to AI, but you could you can pick another area if you like. Right. Um so I don't I don't like I typically don't like to come in just blabbing my mouth. Like mm-hmm. I, I like to listen first. Um, and, and typically, you know, it's a, it's a high ranking individual. If it's, you know, I, I typically like to go back to, I'll do some homework. And this comes from my, you know, a lot of, I spend a lot of time in the social space and there's a, mm-hmm. there's a lot of information out there. So I typically go check a LinkedIn, although I know the LinkedIn's highly groomed. Well, let's say, can, let's say, let me ask another way. What should CEOs be thinking about that? They, not they should be thinking about the, They should be thinking about their data. Mm. Um, because with uh, artificial intelligence, essentially, you know, it's kind of two parts. Um, there's the algorithms, um, and then there's the data. And we like to sort of talk about the data as the rocket fuel to power it. These algorithms are are actually, you know, they're 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 generally available. They're published out there. I just came back from NeurIPS. It's a it's a you know an academic conference, and all the latest and greatest and brightest people just released all their papers. So they essentially have given you the algorithm. So as an organization, your biggest differentiator is your data. Um, so I would be talking to the CEO about their data. And most likely, they're sitting on some data they haven't even thought about that's probably a goldmine. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's not just data. Uh, it's, it's also, you know, the real gold is data that has had some human touch. So data just out in the wild, okay. 
But if there's a piece of data where a human looked at that data and categorized it or labeled it or somehow enriched it with some human intelligence, that is truly gold. So um, my advice would be think about your data uh, generally. Then go think about, you know, the differentiation you have and then also what, you know, what data have you collected that has some sort of human metadata attached to it. Um, that gives you a good sense for, uh, you know, what you have there. And then from there, uh, start to look at, you know, where are the places that I can apply apply this? Um, what algorithms can I apply to that? And uh, what sort of, uh, what applications do I want to create? So where would you start to look for data? Customer, you know, database, yeah. you know, customer, oh. subscriber <laughs> list? Uh, it's everywhere and there's all types. So yeah, there's everything from, um, you know, your email send list to, I had an interesting conversation with a company uh, it's over in Germany, they're a knife company. And uh, they said, uh, when they sell the knife, they give a, a lifetime warranty. Anytime you want the knife sharpened, just send it back. And so they've been doing this for, I think, 20 years. So they've got like 20 years worth of photographs. And what happens when that knife comes in the door is a human has to take the knife, mm. figure out what model it is. Like, was, what model did we make? When did we make this? Then the human has to look at the condition of it and write that down. So this company is sitting on 20 years worth of data of knives coming in where a human said, this is the brand and this is the sort of damage to the knife. So with that data, you could, you could essentially create a piece of AI so that when the knife comes in the door, the AI could look at it, tell you exactly what it is and exactly what the condition is. And then instead of having a human trying to remember that stuff, they could move on and do other things. So, mm. so data can be as, as simple as, the return data or email data or um, I, it comes in all shapes and sizes, but I'd say the two biggest buckets to look at. So in artificial intelligence, the two big buckets would be natural language processing and computer vision. So in LP, look for textual data. So what sort of text do you have laying around for computer vision? What sort of pictures? Now there's another sort of bucket out there um, for some companies would actually have voice data. Um, they would have like calls. And so, Calls you can use, you know, transcription service to essentially take that to text. So uh, even if you have audio data recordings, um, you could get that transcribed to text and you could apply the whole NLP toolkit to it. Um, so, yeah, I would look for buckets of textual data and then visual data. Cool. So uh, do you have a favorite project right now? Anything that you can talk about? Um, oh, yes, yeah. I certainly do. Okay, I certainly let's... do. Uh, this one is, uh, so, so in, uh, at Salesforce, we, we, we have an AI research team. We pretty much have three buckets in there. We have the academic researchers who are publishing papers. We have the applied researchers who are working on product. And then we have AI for good. And so the AI for good program I got to found, uh, last year. Um, there's several projects we're working on, but I own one of them. And this project is called shark eye and it's actually mm -hmm. shark eye.org. Um, this, uh, essentially my boss, uh, who's Dr. Richard Socher, pretty famous, uh, guy in NLP and deep learning is like, MJ, go talk to Dr. McCauley down to UCSB. He has a lot of, you know, he's trying to help with ocean health. Go see what you guys can figure out. So I sat down with Dr. McCauley and he, you know, he simply shared with me how there's, there's now more great white sharks swimming off the coast of the United States than we've ever seen before. And so marine biologists like him are sort of like scratching their heads saying like, why are there so many sharks? We need data to understand this. Um, and then the general public's a little afraid to get in the water. So, mm -hmm. so what, uh, what I did is I partnered with uh, University of Santa Barbara. It's a Benioff Ocean Initiative. So I partnered with. We had to work through all the legal challenges of getting certified drone pilots, where can we fly and all. 
end of the day, what we did, Dave, is uh, we took one beach last year, and essentially every morning we take a drone and we fly a survey there. Um, then we had the video footage. Um, and then I was fortunate to have a bunch of graduate students that took all those hours of video footage and they drew boxes around anytime they saw a great white shark. And so what we had then was a collection of video footage where the great white sharks were labeled. We then fed that into some AI. And what we're able to do is create a piece of artificial intelligence that can count great white sharks. Not only great white sharks, but it can determine if they are adults or juveniles. And mm. so uh, this Shark Eye project, uh, last year we got, uh, got it off the ground. Um, it's over 90% accurate as far as uh, detecting the sharks. And this next year we're going to expand it. And so for me, this is awesome because here, here we have, you know, essentially this, you know, we're, we're essentially taking some of the world's like state-of-the-art artificial intelligence and we're applying it for good purposes um, for organizations that could typically never afford that. And, and it's not only good for the people, but it's good for the sharks as well. So I'm, uh, I'm super, pumped about, uh, super pumped about that project. Cool. What are, you, what are you learning about the sharks? Anything uh, in particular? Um, yeah, it's it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty interesting. Um, there there are a lot more. You know, there's a uh, there. In general, people aren't terribly concerned about the juvenile sharks, but we actually had uh, one of the beach closed. Uh, we, we due to our project. Uh, one day we found a ten foot great white, and the next day we found a twelve foot great white, and they actually posted the beach, which was uh, which was pretty amazing. Um, I guess I've personally learned uh, that there's a lot there's a lot of sharks out there. You know, there's not just great white sharks. There's leopard sharks. There's whale sharks, and so uh, uh, it was a pretty fun activity. Where the thing is, that these these AI systems, it's one thing to do it in the laboratory. It's completely different to do it in the real world. They, you know, you go flying, there's fog or yeah, it's raining, right. <laughs> or the person that's flying the drone wasn't at the right height. So dealing with just the craziness of the real world, or you know, one day we went out and flew, and there was a group of tiger sharks, like thirty of them, and and the AI just didn't know what to do with that. So. But it's, it's totally fine because what we do is we take that data and then we retrain the machine. So we essentially teach it more and we teach it more and we teach it more. So I, I've learned, you know, a bit about sharks, but I think I've learned a lot about how hard it is to take artificial intelligence from the laboratory to the real world. Well, that's probably true about a lot of research-oriented yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, legal. So, at you know, at Salesforce, trust is our number one value, so everything has to be above bar and um, – and so, you know, a lot of the hoops we had to jump through to get the ability to go fly, to get certified, to work with partners. We did. We partnered with lifeguards, um, surf shop owners. Um, kind of comes back to people, Dave. You know, we uh, first time we approached the surf shop, they were like, well, you know, we're, we're not sure we want you to do that thing because that might impact our business. But, um, you know, we, we worked with them and they saw, you know, the place we were coming from, from a scientific uh, perspective, and they were actually very excited about that. And they, they jumped right on board. They're one of our best customers. Cool. So looking back over the last year or so in terms of trends or what you've seen happening with customers or with AI, what surprised you the most? What's... Um, what is surprising me the most? Oh, that's a good, <laughs> that's a pretty good question. There's, a, I mean, there's a, hmm, I don't know, I've seen a lot there, Dave. <laughs> I, I would say, in general, it's still pretty hard. It's still pretty hard to do that at scale in a production environment. Um, and so, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of companies that, that are working towards that. So I'd say it's it's maybe a bit harder than we thought. But on the same token, I'll also say, Dave, 
I see some people, you know, pick up a, an API to, to, a, to a, you know, a computer vision service, and then, like, overnight they build something. Um, um, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know. I see both, you know, it's challenging to do, but then I also see some real success where people are able to quickly pick it up and integrate it. Um, and I think that's maybe where, you know, when you look to apply AI, like, maybe start small. Start with something achievable, relatively straightforward, and, and then continue to ladder your way up. Um, sort of don't, you know, sort of that lean methodology of investing and, and proving value over time. Um, I still, uh, so I'd say one of the things that's impressed me quite a bit, uh, they're called language models. So um, a language model, we also call them word embeddings. And uh, essentially what you do there is you take a, a massive corpus of, of text and you, you feed it to a machine. And the machine looks at the relationships between the words and it and maps it into a really high dimensional vector space. Um, the, these word embeddings are sort of what set the uh, the, the the whole AI group. Uh, you know, everybody got really excited about this several years ago because you can perform math. So you can do something like what is king minus uh, man, and and it computes to queen. Um, so you can operate wow. in there. Yeah. So fair, just super amazing. And so uh, language models. There's been a lot of uh, you know push in, in that lately. Bert or GPT two uh, at Salesforce. We released one called Control. And the, uh, I, I'd say the language models almost give me goosebumps because they are just so good. They're, and so essentially what a language model is doing is just predicting the next word. So it looks at your, what you've written so far and it predicts the next word. What you've written so far, next word. Most people have probably seen this in Gmail. If, if yeah. you're a Gmail user, that recommended reply, mm-hmm. that's a language model powering that. And so uh, the, uh, we've been working with this. And um, uh, this, is, this is a technology I want to I go productize. I, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I think that could help. I think about people, you know, writing emails or people, you know, writing marketing copy or people trying to support, you know, trying to solve your problem where your, your computer won't boot up. And I really think uh, the language model will, will give a lot of benefit. Uh, I also like language models because I don't see them as a replacement. This is another thing, Dave. There's, you know, there's a lot of concern around um, how AI is going to impact the, the essentially the, our, our jobs. And, um, and, you know, we'd be foolish to say it's not because with every industrial revolution, it also changes the, the, the workspace. And so uh, I like the language model application because it really feels like, you know, sort of the, the, the human and the machine where I type a few words and the machine gives me a few words and I type a few words and it gives me a few, a few words. And that sort of like humble human working with intelligent machines to co-create content. That's what I believe is sort of the future of people working with machines, not getting replaced by machines. Cool. Are there any uh, people, uh, product services, companies out there that you find really inspiring? I mean, who, who or what inspires you right now? I, I kind of come back to I get really inspired by good design, um, mm. by those, those uh, sort of clean, simple interfaces. Um, I get inspired. There's a lot of great startups out there doing, um, you know, really, really amazing things. Um, I don't, don't have any uh, necessarily name off, but um, I, I, I do get inspired by sort of simple, clean solutions. And, um, and, and I don't know, I'm just kind of inspired by the human race, like how we're all, you know, working together and working so hard to try to create that future. Um, it's, it's, it's really inspiring to see. Cool. Okay. People love tools. Um, and I, I'm by tools, I mean, I don't mean necessarily software tools. I'm thinking about methods, frameworks, uh, exercises, activities. 
So you do a lot of work with people. Do you have any uh, methods or tools that or frameworks that you find yourself coming back to over and over and over? You mentioned how you prioritize lists as one. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Another one I really like. It, it's something. Uh, it's a Benioff. Uh, Mark Benioff created it. It's called the V two Mom, which stands for your values, your visions, your methods, your measures, and your obstacles. And uh, it's quite a mouthful. There's, if you Google it, you'll you'll find a lot. I really like that, and I use that a lot um, because you know we go back to it. We're a forty thousand person company. How do you get forty thousand people to deliver? And, and sort of align and, and, and work together. Um, and so that's, that's the tool we use at Salesforce. And essentially what it does is it starts at the top with Mark and he writes a V2Mom. And so basically on your methods, you have, you know, 10 or so methods and then it sort of trickles down. So then below Mark, he might have a method around security and that security method goes to the security person. The AI one would go to my boss, et cetera. And then, so my, you know, Richard takes the AI method and then he sort of breaks that down. And so, I think the, the V2Mom is a very powerful tool to help drive organizational alignment so that we're all working together. Um, and so I use that tool because I'm out there doing deals. I'm, I'm working with Service Cloud, Marketing Cloud, Sales Cloud. And so, you know, you can talk about it all day long. You can trade emails, et cetera. But if you put it on the V2Mom, it's, it's going to happen. And so that's, that's what I really go for is I try to tee up the conversations and then ultimately say, hey, why don't we put this on the V2Mom? Because then it's out there in the open. It's transparent. It's agreed upon. Um, and so uh, I really feel that that improves the success of, of projects and alignment. So that would be one tool I, uh, I find pretty powerful. I haven't used it in a while, but I used to really love the business model canvas mm. um, as another tool. Um, I think that, you know, really quickly sort of got down to like, what are, what are the value you're creating? You know, what are the channels? I love, uh, I really love that tool. Uh, when I think about other ideas, I'll sort of sketch that out as well awesome what about do you have any um advice for people who are early stage or mid stage in their careers just career advice for people it's funny i do i actually it's kind of fun dave i feel like you know i've i've gotten here i was pulling up my note i was trying to find them um i'm i'm where i am today because people people help me they invest time in me and uh and now i feel like i'm at the point in my career where it's time for me to start to do that for others and actually uh i mentor a number of folks at our company um and it i uh, i have had so many people come to me and say hey Mjik, can we talk and so i actually created a list uh, called keeping it fresh and uh, i sort of have these like 10 sort of you know some are rather cliche but uh but sort of 10 little sayings that kind of kept me going and I think have helped me along the way. And, and I think the first one comes down to like asking for what you want. Like that's, that's like number one. And, and I find that a lot of people struggle with that. Um, and then a lot of people are unhappy with their situation because they didn't ask for what they wanted in the first mm -hmm. place. So I think that's the first one is, and then I think it also speaks to transparency of, you know, instead of beating around the bush, like, no, this is what I want. This is what I like to do. And the thing is, if you start there, you can always work down. Um, and if you're not going to ask for it, nobody's going to ask for it. So I really think that's the first one is if you're unhappy and, and you're like, how am I going to get to my next level? Like, don't just sit there thinking it's going to fall in your lap. You need to get out there and you need to ask for what you want. Um, and, um, and then you need to be willing to work for it. Um, can so, you run down the list for us? Yeah, I was trying to find it here. <laughs> That'd be kind of fun. Um, so that was one of them. Um, the other, let's see, it's over here in the private section, keeping it fresh. Um, 
ask for what you want. Uh, the other one is assume ignorance, not malice. I think, you know, a lot of when you're working with people, you know, sometimes they don't they don't like your idea or they don't take your idea or they don't do it. And some people become, oh, you know, they're mean. And it's like so I think so, when you immediately jump to that, like, where are you going to go from there? So it's always better just to be like, you know what? They didn't really understand the technology or I didn't do a good job explaining it or so. So I think the assume ignorance, not malice keeps me much happier. And generally, that's true. I don't think there's mm -hmm. not many people out there looking to just uh, get get you. Another one is nothing sells like success. Because um, a lot of people ask me, like, MJ, you know, how how will I get other people to work on this thing with me? Or, or how am I going to get that? And I'm like, well, show your success from the past. Like, you know, people are attracted to success. They're not they're not attracted to 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 trouble. Um, it's typically success. So like get out there and talk about those amazing things you've done. I think that's where social is an amazing platform for that, um, of sort of tout that. Um, trust your gut is another one um, that, that I think applies in, in both work and home. Um, and so I do, as I get older, put a lot more value uh, into that. Another one is your time is valuable. I, I don't think, you know, some people don't treat their time like it's valuable. And, and like, you know, you should always think about your time is valuable. So choose where you put that time wisely, this comes back into the prioritize list. Um, I come back to each day as a gift that kind of like I get up in the morning genuinely excited. You know, I hit the ground. I'm ready to go. Um, and uh, that kind of, you know, everybody's like, MJ, why are you always so happy? I'm like, Gosh, <laughs> we're, we're alive. Like, we're not ill. I got my health. I'm working with amazing people. Um, follow your curiosity. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, I wonder what. If you if you never go go there, if you don't explore out there or blaze that trail out there, then you're never gonna find out. So I definitely encourage people to like follow that curiosity, see where that leads you. Um, focus on creating value. So many people are focused on winning or doing this or doing that, and they'll say, no, 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 it's very simple. Like you want to create value in the world. If you create value, then good things will come. So I uh, really sort of put put that. And then the last two are back to people. And so uh, the first one is I have opportunities that are attached to people. You know, they're not, they're not just floating around there. Um, like opportunities are, are attached to people. So that means in order to find those opportunities, you need to know the people. I mean, you need to put yourself out there. You need to, you know, uh, talk to them, build relationships. And then finally, I wish this last one. So Jill Rowley was who I heard it credited to. I'm not sure it's hers, um, but uh, I think she actually said someone else. But the saying is your network is your net worth. And um, I think that is, uh, that's incredibly powerful. You know, here on the West Coast, uh, we have, you know, this terrible homeless issue. And we go out there and we see these people on the street. And you're like, how can that happen? That's because they have no network. Their family doesn't want them. Their friends don't want them. They have a lot. They have zero network. And there they are. And so I think that's sort of like an example of, you know, what happens when you have no network. And so uh, I, I do believe your network is your net worth. So that's sort of the, uh, the keeping it fresh top 10. Awesome. Those are great. <laughs> Thank you. What we're we're sort of running to uh, toward the end of our time. Um, do you have any closing thoughts? No, actually, I kind of like ending with those with those with those ten. Like, um, I, I do I do believe uh, you know we're it's amazing times right now, and it's uh, and we have you know we've uh, as a society it's we're in a good place. You know, we've, we've conquered a lot of those. Um, you know, if you go read Sapiens, uh, you know, he talks about, we, you know, we're no longer, uh, you know, war, famine, health, like most of those resolved. It's, it's pretty good times. And it's, I, I feel like it's, it's, it's an amazing time to, 
to to learn new things, to create value, to work with people, and to you know to build a better world. All right. Well, thanks, MJ. It's really been great talking to you. I really appreciate your time today. Totally. Thank you, Greg. Dave. Design Inside is brought to you by Explain, a design consultancy focused on using the power of design to activate strategy, culture, and process in organizations since 1993.